Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So you first. What's astonishing you? What is astonishing me? I am astonished by an invitation that I have received to give a talk for a women's dinner at a church in South Carolina. In my 20 years plus of ordained ministry, this is the first time I've received an invitation like this. And um, I am not only astonished, but humbled by the invitation. My assignment is to talk about the impact of Christian women on my life. And so it's been so good the past couple of weeks, just think, just reviewing my life, mm-hmm. thinking about the gifts that God has given me um, through Christian women. Um, I, and I, I don't know why I haven't thought about this before. For example, my call to ministry exclusively through women, mm-hmm. not a single man involved. I'm, I'm 17 years old, after school job in a grocery store, mm-hmm. right? I'm a cashier. Mm-hmm. And it's a neighborhood store, so you know just about everybody who comes in. And a woman comes through my line. I've never seen her before. And I'm, you know, doing my cashier thing, scanning the groceries. And she says, you're called to be a preacher. Huh. I said, lady, I don't even go to church. I said exactly <laughs> those words. Like, I wasn't even a churchgoer. Yeah. She said, you're called to be a preacher. And I totally dismissed that. I was like, yeah. okay, weirdo. Yep. Less than a month later, right, my English teacher, Mrs. Brightson, a good Episcopalian woman, I found out later, um, made me enter this speech contest. And for this contest, I had to memorize Desmond Tutu's Nobel Peace Prize address. And so we're, we're practicing one day after school, and she pauses, and she's just staring at me. I was like, what, did I, did I miss a word? Did I get something wrong? Should I change my voice? And she said... Have you ever thought about becoming a priest? Huh. This is odd. Yep. And um, there has to be a third. That's no, no. There's only two. Only those two. (laughs) (laughs) Two points. Two point sermon. (laughs) Just two. No, there's only two. But it's. But at the same time, I was going through this spiritual awakening. I was listening uh, to things about Christianity on the radio. I was reading, and I remember after. That time with with, uh, my English teacher, I went to the school library and I checked out three books, Why I'm a Baptist, Why I'm a Roman Catholic, and Why I'm a Presbyterian. And I remember the first line of Why I'm a Presbyterian said, Presbyterians are people of the middle way. And so since I really wasn't a Christian, I didn't belong to any churches, (laughs) that sounded safe. (laughs) Middle way. Okay, let's look into this Presbyterian thing. I know, I know, I know. But... But I hadn't thought about that in a long time. And um, I mean, what a gift God gave me in those women. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, my mom and, you know, and, 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 you know, the temptation during an event like this is to go cheesy yes. and sentimental. And I'm not going to do that Thank uh, you. With, with mom. And, and with my mom, it's so easy to talk about courage and leadership you know, I remember her walking me to school and being afraid of walking past this business with, you know, uh, Dobermans behind the fence. And whenever I was with her, I, I knew I was safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about being a teenager and having a, a summertime job in the factory she worked in. Mm-hmm. And, and she, she worked there for years. I didn't know she was anybody's boss. Mm-hmm. So I go into in this I go into this environment in which my mom is in charge. Everyone knows her. She's running some stuff and that that just has had an impact on me in terms of her leadership and leadership in general. And so it's just been really <coughs> a blessing to think about all of those things and all of those women uh, and I'm going to I'm going to pair each one with a particular place in scripture. And uh, 
again, I'm just filled with gratitude for how God has used them to shape me. But you're not just going to pair it with stories about women in scripture. That is correct. Thank you. Yes, yes. Thank you. For example, uh, I'm going to talk about the woman who knocked on our door when I was two years old. Yeah. Um, This is an amazing story. Well, I was born with some abnormalities in my eyes, and the doctor said, you know, I would have trouble academically, and uh, my eyes were severely crossed. There was something wrong with the muscles, and... My mom says that. Wait, this might be inappropriate, but yeah. Do you have any pictures of yourself with your severely crossed eyes? Oh, that is so eyes? wrong, so wrong. Um, actually, I think I may have one or two. I really, as a I toddler. had, I had casts that went all the way up my legs to the edge of my diapers when I was a baby. So wow. I'll trade you off. Okay, very good. Humiliation for humiliation. Yeah, um, but there's your third woman. Tell, but tell that story. That's a great story. So yes, I was born with these abnormalities in my eyes, and um, there was this woman in the neighborhood who. Clearly Pentecostal charismatic. Um, And my mom said that when I was two years old, one day she knocked on the door and said, someone in this house needs prayer. And mom let her in. She did her thing and left. And mom said at some point that day, my eyes straightened up. And so, um, and she's told me that story, you know, for most of my life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I'm pairing that story, that woman with um, Acts chapter two, where Peter quotes Joel, Mm -hmm. Uh, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And so, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to um, uh, giving this talk. And, um, you know, an- another thing that comes to mind about the talk I'm giving is uh, when, I, when I talk about my wife, Han, um, and I, I just learned this, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word for helper, um, Azer. Azer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have always shied away from yep. the, the helper label mm-hmm. until recently. The etymology of that word is amazing. Yes. And there are only two people in the whole Old Testament yep. who are called a helper, Eve and God. Yeah. And so when we hear helper in English, we tend to think kind of um, well, we've been secondary, subservient. Yes. Backseat. Mm-hmm. But we would never say that about God when the psalmist says that the God of Jacob is your help, yeah. your helper, right? Yeah. And so really that word, it, it points to um, an essential partner, not a secondary partner, someone essential. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, I'm just looking forward to to sharing those things and a lot more. And um, um, it, it's been so, uh, it's such a blessing to remember uh, some really powerful stories uh, that have shaped me and and brought me to this place in life. Uh, I'm grateful to talk about uh, a seminary professor, Johanna Boss, who was amazing um, to me and just an amazing Old Testament professor. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm just astonished by that invitation and looking forward to giving that talk. And um, hopefully, it'll be a blessing to those women gathered. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you have a happy, astonished. I have a, um, I am not a happy one. <laughs> Just, um, I, so I think, um, in all of this journey that I have been on at the Grove, um, that God has you know, done a transformation in me so profoundly. Um, I think if you could boil it all down to one thing that has been changed, like life changing for me is I had to recognize how much I coveted and worshipped the idol of control. Mm. Just just this, I in order to feel safe, in order to feel, um, you know, valuable, I needed to believe and function as if there were certain guarantees that if I did X and worked hard and was faithful, then Y would happen, the church would grow, people would love me, people would value me. And, you know, like every idol, it is false. It's a lie. It's an illusion, right? Um, but but the reason that we worship idols is because they they do something for us, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean they 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 work it works for us until mm-hmm. it doesn't. And so, you know the 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 
thing about this journey at the Grove is that just in a thousand ways I have learned, God has brought me to this place of recognizing that I am I am not in control and God does not owe me any particular outcomes. And mm. if I don't get what I think should happen, that's not evidence that God is unfaithful to me, right? And that that is true and it frees me to be to make hard um, choices or risky choices um, and not just safe choices, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, so it's a it's a gift for that idol to be smashed. But what astonishes me is how, without even being aware, aware of it, I so often gather up the pieces and glue it back together again and, and <laughs> find my peace worshiping mm. at this altar again. Mm. And, you know, and I don't think that God is like punishing me or, mm-hmm. you know, t- testing me or anything like that. I just think that idol worship is um, something that steals life and control. And the, and so, you know, just it's the, the deep irony that I'm astonished at is that on, on Monday morning, I was at the church and, um, you know, we, we talked about this a lot, like the Grove, I pastor the Grove, but the Grove is also my church. It's my community. It's where I'm like where I am, not because it's my paycheck, but because of this is who I am. And so there are times when I'm at the Grove because I am the pastor of the Grove. And then there's times when I'm at the Grove because this is my my community, this is my tribe. And so Monday is my day off, but Monday is also the day where the Grove has a um, mommy or whatever, a baby music class. And so I go with my youngest daughter, Carrie, and I'm at the Grove at this class after what was just a real, I mean, which was a, a good and hard, intense weekend. Mm. Like nothing, I mean, everything that happened needed to happen. It was, it was totally appropriate that, you know, but just, it was, it was a very intense weekend and it's Monday morning and I'm, I'm there because I just am there to like, you know, sing songs with my baby and have a mommy baby day and whatever. And I had forgotten that I had agreed months ago, was happy to agree months ago to, to have a meeting right after this at um, 11 o'clock to, to meet with some folks about the Grove and tell, share the story, which is something I, I love to do. Um, but I just wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't remember. I wasn't dressed like a professional pastor. I was not. And anyway, but I'm, I'm having this um, meeting and telling the story of the Grove and, and, you know, saying what I deeply believe is true, which is that, you know, ministry is just an extension, a particular extension of every believer's decision to give their whole life to Mm. Jesus and say, do whatever you want with this. And that I sincerely believe that what you would make out of my life is better than what I would make out of my life. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and, and that's what Every believer is called to do not, you know, Jesus is my co-pilot. No, <laughs> no. I mean, a I hate cheesy stuff like that. But even if I were to overlook like that, that's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like that yeah. is not what we believe. Like dying to self, being born again. Yeah. Like this is about. And so I, you know, I'm I'm talking about this with these folks and and recounting the places in the past of you know, where God destroyed that illusion for me that I was in control or that I should be in control or that certain outcomes were owed to me and and just the tremendous amount of fruitfulness and freedom that came in the aftermath of turning from that idol to worshiping, you know, the true and living God. And yet I realized that, you know, some situations cropped up this weekend and that, you know, even though I'm saying there's no guarantee we're not an institutionally strong community, we probably never will be one. And I'm not sure that that's God's will for us. And, you know, I accept that. I rejoice in that. And yet, and yet, you know, things still happen that threaten to swamp the boat. And I know that just because the boat hasn't sunk in the past that doesn't mean that it won't in the future. And I know that everything has a life cycle. And I know that if the Grove were to close tomorrow, that wouldn't mean that what we were was unfaithful, right? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I just, and still I struggle with experiencing not theoretically the idea that I'm not supposed to be in control, but living with the actuality of the fact that I am not in control Um, and that the illusion of being controlled, that idol is very comforting Mm. 
um, because it allows you to ignore reality in a way that can help you to sort of go to sleep at night. Yeah, I was going to say it's a way of dealing with the anxiety. <laughs> and it's a way of not being vulnerable towards God, just yes. not really recognizing mm-hmm. that, you know, who, like the people being thrown into the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like our God will rescue us, but, e- but even if not, not, God is still God. And, and I feel like that is a really hard place to live. Like mm-hmm. this is the right, you know, I believe, I, I believe that I am being faithful to God's call on my life. And I believe that faithfulness begets fruitfulness, mm. but even if not in a way that people can visibly see and experience and celebrate God is still God and I, you know, and, but it's just, it's, it's a really difficult place because I think there's always this illusion that like, yeah, you got to live in that for a season, but then you'll grow out of it. Right. Um, and I don't think we're ever called to grow out of that utter vulnerability before God. And yet it's a holy place to live, but a really uncomfortable place to live. And sometimes I just want to be comfortable and, Anyway, so that is just what's astonishing me is how how hard it is um, to learn this lesson and how even though I know something is a lie, I continue to practically worship it in so many ways. And that, anyway, so that's enough theoretical wow. theology talk <laughs> from me today. But that's what's astonishing me. What are you thinking about? Unless you want to respond to that. I'm sorry. Well, no. I mean, I can. I, one of the things that it, it uh, makes me think about is um, I, I can't remember if it's a psalm or proverb that says, I mean, it's almost, it's kind of a plea. Lord, give me neither poverty nor yeah. riches. Because if you, give, yeah. if you give me riches... Then I'm gonna forget about you. And if you give me poverty, I'm gonna be tempted to steal and dishonor you. And so when you're in an institution that that has some uncertainty and vulnerability, there's the temptation to say, no, Lord, give give us um, certainty, give us riches, but you, you. even if you get that place of stability, that that ideal place of stability, that's still very dangerous as well. Right, and I think it's the idea that like, because we live in a culture that says power and wealth equal value. Yeah. And so it's difficult to to sort of accept that Mm -hmm. those are not necessarily healthy things for us to possess as humans, much less as believers. And so, you know, finding that right space of, I mean, it's hard to make good decisions when you're, when you're terrified or when you're despairing mm-hmm. or when you're hopeless, but it's also hard to make good decisions when, you know, there's, there's so much at stake that you don't want to risk it or, you know, so I do think that's a helpful thing. Like mm-hmm. it's not, I don't want to have existential dread as I live my life, but yeah. I just want to recognize that what it takes you you know it takes getting used to really walking in vulnerability before the lord and yet that's i really believe yeah i mean that's reality yeah and contentment is something we all want but it right. is so elusive when i think the trick is am i content because i feel like you know because i'm in am i content because i feel like i'm in control mm-hmm. am i content mm-hmm. because i feel like we have enough so that nothing bad can happen to us or yes. am i content because I trust God Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I trust, you know, and those are two very different kinds. One's a holy contentment and one is a false contentment and one is generative and fruitful and one is, you know, leads to death, I think. Because underneath the vulnerability, I think are two questions and you just named one, will I have enough? Mm -hmm. And the other I think is, can I, can my soul really find a place of satisfaction and both of those are just deeply spiritual questions and if and if Jesus isn't the answer to both of those then you're in trouble and I think as pastors so often we are called to go out in front and like lead a community to a place where they aren't yet. Mm. And so we have to be able to find our contentment in Jesus because a lot of times people aren't going to have the capacity to see and affirm what we're doing because 
because they haven't experienced it yet because it's our job to lead them to a place where they can experience because we can't we talk about this a lot like we can't be mad at people for not knowing things that it's our job to teach them Mm -hmm. right and so Mm -hmm. if if our contentment isn't in jesus then we can't go first and that is a really hard thing as a leader um not to because i you know because we love people and mm-hmm. we want people um, to love us back and we want people to honor us back. And sometimes, you know, I just want the people that I love to be comfortable. Yeah. I mean, or I want them to be happy. Yeah, and, sure. it's, and it's hard to trust God with painful things in their lives. And so mm-hmm. anyway, it, it's wow. just, it's really That's hard good. to trust Jesus. Even yeah. after I have so many primary experiences of discovering how trustworthy Jesus is yeah. and how... Every time for me, and you know, especially in this ministry journey, every time something has turned out not the way I thought it needed to yeah. be, what happened instead, maybe not immediately, but ultimately, was far, far better. And so I, you know, you think you should know by now, and well, I'm better, but I'm still vulnerable. In our text from last week that I preached from Philippians, surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, There was something that I'd never seen before, but Paul said, I have learned contentment. Oh, yeah. He he learned. It's not something that just falls on you all at once in a Mm -hmm. day, but, you know, all the things that Paul went through, being beaten, beaten, shipwrecked, jailed, right? He said, I learned, and I learned in the school of abundance because there -hmm. there were times when he had more than enough. He said, I learned in scarcity, in, in the school of poverty. Yeah. And so both of those seasons were opportunities for him to learn contentment. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. All right, we have to move on. Yes, we do. We have many other things to discuss. What are you thinking about? Well, uh, oh. Oh. Kate. <laughs> Whatever you're thinking about, you should yes. stop thinking it. Well, <laughs> listen. I, my mother in law <laughs> used to say, say to my, uh, my husband and his brother all the time, he used to say, pleasantries, only pleasantries. <laughs> <laughs> so. I don't know. Well, you and I have talked about this for many years, as a matter of fact. And I have, oh, in the past, I kind of, I, I didn't dismiss you, but I just, I just really wasn't ready to talk about it. And now I need to talk about it. Oh. Yeah. So, okay, Halloween is coming up. Oh. Yeah. And so, you know, when Han and I were dating... We would just go out to dinner. Correct. We got married. We turn off the lights at the house, let everyone know we were not there, and we went out to dinner. Matthew was born. While he's an infant, while he's a toddler, we'd go out to dinner, buy him some candy. Great, he's happy. Yeah, and when his preschool had like wear your costume to school, you kept him home. I kept him home. Yeah. Yep. Whatever. We have had this conversation yes, a lot, over and oh. over, year after year after year. I'm like. And, and you've said, you know, you, you kind of have to deal with this. I'm like, whatever. This is what we do. Well, now Matthew is in kindergarten. Yes, and all of his friends do certain things for Halloween. And, you know, you know that I have a great dislike for Halloween. I do know this. Um, it's just, in my own heart and mind, it is a great distortion of All Saints Day. Yep. It is thoroughly pagan <laughs> i am I'm sorry i'm sorry i just I time out no 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 i listen i'm not disagreeing with you but friend you and i like survivor okay i know you and i like we cannot it's like, different survivor is a game it's a show I'm just saying, like, to say something is pagan and so I don't participate in it. I mean, like, they literally, they literally search for idols and snuff out people's torches and fire. So this is like, I'm just calling, I am calling, flag on the play. I'm saying inconsistency. Let me put it another way. Let me put it another way. I am irritated because in our society, especially in Presbyterian Reformed culture, if I were to say the Holy Ghost spoke to me or the Holy Ghost did this or that, uh, we, we don't want much to do with that. But if I said, you know, the other day I was in my house and I saw a ghost. Oh, let's lean in and hear that story. Okay, I, I disagree. 
Oh no, I totally think that's where we are. We have a fascination in our culture with... In the culture, yes. But if you call that the Presbyterian church, like if you're saying no, that Presbyterian pastors that in, or leaders are, want to have those kinds of conversations. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not okay. saying we want to have those conversations. In the culture, yes. Absolutely. But I'm saying yes. if, if I listen to people talk, when I listen to people talk, oh, that kind of stuff comes up in sure, the Sure, because people want to think and um, talk about spiritual things and supernatural things, yes. but they want to be special and holy. It's Gnosticism, right? Like, I'm not down for your stupid My dead religion, is, but I'm... Yes. We want to talk about supernatural things when it comes to the spooky, the shadowy, Correct. right? Sure. But when it comes to what God has done, what God is doing... Uh, we're really not so keen on right, that. Right, because right? we want to believe that we're special. Yes. And we're and having I, this experience that no one else is having. So we've got to uh, discern as a family how we're going to relate to this holiday. Mm-hmm. And I called it a holiday. Ugh. How we're going to relate to this day. And we're not sure what we're going to do. Our congregation, um, small and older and doesn't have a history of fall festival type things, which we would totally do, totally embrace that. Uh, There's the idea of going to other church festivals. Okay, but we really don't, you know, we want to know people. We want to know the community. Um, So we're we're trying to discern what to do. And so that's just, it's just bothering me. So here's, I mean, so we have had this conversation for years. And obviously, like it's Adi Afron, right? Like Christians can disagree about what this is like. But for me, I, I just think there are some things as a believer that I have to take a hard stand on and say, I won't, I I won't participate in that. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, all lives matter versus Mm -hmm. black lives matter. Mm -hmm. Like I, I get that you might not mean what I, what you think, but this is the impact and I need to take a stand here or Mm -hmm. I need to, but, but for me, yes, Halloween can be about the occult. Yeah. And I, Obviously, I'm not down with that. And I do think that it is dangerous and foolish and ultimately death-producing to encourage people to be fascinated with what is evil instead of with what is good. But Halloween, for the majority of people, um, is about meeting your neighbors, imagination, fun, joy. Like, that's how my family Mm -hmm. celebrates that and... I, I think it is one of those places where I need to not say to people by my withdrawing, the danger is that people interpret that as me saying, oh, you worship Satan. And that's, I mean, that's, that is not, that's preposterous. Like, can Satan, the enemy, use this as an occasion to lead people astray? Yes. But the enemy also can and does use Christmas as an occasion to lead people astray in different ways. So, you know, my kids know very clearly that like, we don't, we don't tell ghost stories. And in fact, I mean, it's interesting what you talk about with ghost stories because, um, we send our kids to Camp Greer, our church kids, and they, you know, have some camp traditions around ghost stories and, you know, I, I really have, I have to talk to them about, listen, <laughs> this to you seems like harmless fun, mm-hmm. but I'm saying like, I need my kids to understand what the supernatural realm actually is yeah. and what we celebrate and what we don't play with. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, I need my kids to understand what is real and what is, you know, a titillating lie or, yeah. you know, so I, so there are some things that I won't, I won't go with. Like my kids would say, we're not dressing up like ghouls. We're not dressing up like murder yes. victims. We're not, we're not doing that. I mean, my son wants to dress up as, you know, one of the Paw Patrol characters. I'm, I'm totally good with that. And I get that it's difficult to explain to a five-year-old what Jesus, like what displeases Jesus about him dressing up like a Paw Patrol yeah. and walking into his neighborhood and meeting his neighbors yeah. And giving and receiving candy. Like, nothing about that displeases the Lord. Like, are there things that displease the Lord? Sure. But if we, like, X out whole experiences because they could be manipulated by the enemy to turn people... Then, I mean, there's nothing... We're just going to have to go ahead and kill ourselves because there's nothing left, right? So, I just... Oh, but that is interesting because this is your really slow way of saying... 
Kate, you told me years ago that I was going to have to wrestle with this more when Matthew was older, and now Matthew is older, and, and here you, you are. I and mean, you I, did say that, yes. Well, listen, well, you and Han are amazing parents. Well, and, you're kind. And, like, our kids all have things that they get ticked about. Like, my kids, for years... They just accepted the reality that when we host birthday parties for them, no one is allowed to bring them presents. Their guests aren't allowed to bring them presents. Mm-hmm. And my kids didn't call me on it for years because they didn't they didn't notice how yeah. different... Even though I would send them to other people's birthday parties. I mean, it's astonishing how long wow. it took them to say, hey, wait a minute. Wait, wait, time out. You know, and I just had to say, look, the, these are our family values. That's the issue. Yes. We're right. trying to clarify our family values. Right. And but I have to be able to explain to them mm-hmm. like we think that you have more than enough mm-hmm. and we think that when you host a party and invite guests in that it's it's our family tradition that we don't ask people to bring us gifts that we want to give gifts and it's mm-hmm. not bad or wrong if yeah. other people have different values but yeah. these are our values mm-hmm. and when you grow up if you start a family or, or even you can choose different ones but mm-hmm. these are ours and we're in charge mm-hmm. now and no matter what it is mm-hmm. we're not going to have the experience of our kids while they're our kids rising up and saying thank you for these values <laughs> that's right yes <laughs> i mean unless we're just unquestionably doing whatever you know unless we're letting our kids determine what the values are and Mm -hmm. that's not cool Mm -hmm. so i mean hats off to you good luck with that well (laughs) i'm grateful that you know han is willing to you know work with me and have this do this work of discerning our family values and our how do we want to shape the culture of our life together Mm -hmm. And and that's hard work sometimes and so we're just coming to one of those places where you know, we need to clarify, adjust. What do we need to change? We we probably need to change something, and we know that. We're just not quite sure what. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I mean, for all the years that we've talked about this, um, I've been self-monitoring how, just how, what a knee-jerk need there is when you have a friend who comes down in a different place mm. about something that matters to you, like how difficult it is. Mm. It, your instinct is like to be threatened by that in mm. some kind of way. Yeah, and yeah. to be able to say like, it's okay. You know, it is okay um, that we are in different places about this. And um, obviously, you know, I don't know in this, but a lot of times you're in a different place and, and maybe in both of you can't be right, but how you can just sort of live with the reality of, I don't need to control where you are, or I don't yeah. need to adjust where I am yeah. to come. Like we can have, you know, respect and honor and a, you know, vital, healthy relationship without friendship without, yeah. you know, it, but it's just an interesting thing that even, even with all the luxury of all the theological training and time and space we have to, parse this out that that you just have this knee jerk mm, instinct yeah, to really need yeah, to pull a, yeah. another person to where you are yeah. um and and then to recognize how that functions in our culture in general that we're just threatened by people yeah. who make different choices mm-hmm. than we do mm-hmm. and to be able to sort of notice that and go huh why does this bother me so much and it yeah. probably means I don't have as much clarity mm. around the values mm. that I'm using to make these decisions wow. as I think I do. And anyway, yeah. so. Well, that's what I'm thinking about. Interesting. So Interesting. how about you? Um, I'm thinking about something that is obviously not new news to you. And it's not really new to me either, but it is continues to just, I, I continue to see that it's bigger and bigger than I want to admit. And that is that um, just... Over the past week, um, with a couple of ministry situations that I have been trying to be present to in my congregation, and because I have this great privilege and miraculous honor of serving a diverse congregation, so as a white person, people of color have invited me to be their pastor. Mm -hmm. And so that means that I witness things that most white people would not witness, in that I witness how differently certain people, white institutions and white people, that like given my experience as a white person with this other white person or with this white institution, 
I experience them as having a, a, a certain set of values and a certain culture. Mm. And then because I pastor people of color and they, I know that the same white person or white institution has treated them in an entirely different way. Mm. Um, so, I mean, obviously there's like the extreme examples of, you know, a police officer, you know, would, you know, an African-American citizen would be, uh, you know, often ends up dead in traffic encounters. And as a white person, like I get nervous in a traffic encounter, but I'm not really, really afraid I'm going to die because I know, I know that for an officer to accidentally or on purpose shoot me as a white woman, they Mm -hmm. would undergo a lot more scrutiny Mm -hmm. than they would like any narrative they gave forth about why that was justified would undergo a lot more scrutiny than they would if they killed a person. I mean, and that's an extreme example, but just, um, you know, pastoring people of color and just building up enough trust so that they would be willing to, um, share Mm. space ways that they have been disrespected and dishonored by, you know, people and institutions that, that again, like I have my own direct primary experiences with those people and institutions. And it's hard for me. It's literally hard to believe that what they're telling me is true. I do let me clarify, like Mm -hmm. I do, Mm -hmm. but I just, you know, I just, it's one of those things where you just realize as a white person that people of color in our communities just constantly have to navigate this low-lying stream of disrespect and dishonor all the time and constantly have to navigate, like, what are you going to respond to and what are you going to swallow and constantly have to navigate, you know, certain things are happening. Is this really the way it is? And this is just what everyone has to do or pay? Or is this something that I'm being asked Mm -hmm. to do or pay because this person feels like they can get away with it. You know, and it's just, it's, I mean, and I know that people call this the black tax. I just think that as a, as a white person, because I have the privilege of being, not just being in a multicultural community, but also because people trust me as their pastor, because it's Mm -hmm. humiliating to talk about how someone talks to you when, I mean, it's just really, I mean, it's just in some way, I think it is similar to the way that many men just don't know how many, you know, humiliating experiences most women have Mm. just walking around in the world because Mm. people, and you just can't respond to all of it. Anyway, so I just, I've just been thinking a lot about this week um, because there've just been a couple of instances that have been really, egregious and in my face and um hmm. you know wreck having a, a, a anyway i've just been thinking about that and grieving that and I, I i probably need to sit with whether i need to you know write about it or try to have a bigger way of saying to other white people like you don't know what you don't know and people aren't going to tell you if you aren't going to believe them if you're not really willing if you make it clear that you're not really willing to consider how bad things are um and that's that's just a really sobering reality and why i continue to believe that our work in in trying to create you know multicultural christian communities is so important because i feel like you know, life in Christ is one of the only authentic places mm-hmm. where holy love and friendship and authenticity and vulnerability can can be in a healthy place. And and if we're not willing to do that as the body of Christ, like I don't know what other institutions in our current society can can hold the weight of that and yeah. do it well. Yeah. Um, other than you know a voluntary sacred mm-hmm. institution where there's a anyway so. Um, I've just been thinking about that and grieving that and I'm well that's sad. part of the um, both the beauty and the pain right. of being multi-ethnic church right 
if people, when people get to a place of vulnerability where they share hurts, experiences, right? That means there are going to be some people hearing and having eyes opened and they're going to run, they're going to want to either cry, run away, get angry. It's going to, it's going to be hard. But if, if folks will just stay in that, mm-hmm. just think of the incredible healing um, that takes place when that happens. I, I just think it's a beautiful thing, even though it's just so incredibly hard and um, exhausting right. um, to do that work. And I think like, because what white people need to understand is that you can't, we can't fix it. But what you can do is not like repeat it by saying it's not true. And I just, mm-hmm. I mean, and I experience this a lot in talking with other, just other white people about different, you know, cultural issues or trends and, you know, that I, have people I care about, not, I'm not, this is not Grove people, but just other people in my life who I will just name something that's really tragic and deeply unjust. And, and the other person's responsibility, that can't be true. Like just, I'm well, done. Well, one of the things that um, I, when I, when I have occasion to, because um, I think it is hard for white people to hear, but one of the things I, I try to help white people understand is that often when African Americans are sharing, the filter I think they're hearing it through is me as an individual, an individual white person. And often when we're sharing, we're not only sharing as individuals, we're sharing as a group, a co- like we'll... For example, you know, there's, you know, comedians talk about this all the time. You know, if something happens on the news, right, the, there's there's a headline. Some terrible thing has happened. Some terrible, some person has done some terrible thing. And we're watching the news going, oh, please don't let the person be black. Please don't let them. Because we think that is a reflection of all of there's us. There's literally a Saturday Night Live sketch this past Saturday about that. Like oh, a group of newscasters. It. You need to look it up. It's like a group of newscasters, two white and two African-American, and they're going through headlines. And the whole time, they're like literally keeping score. Be like, oh, yeah, that's yeah, yes. us. see, oh, I think when, when African-Americans are sharing pain, um, white people hear, oh, they're saying something about me as an individual. They're right. saying, I'm a bad person. And it's like, no, first of all, we're sharing an experience, but we're also wanting you to see, yes, how you do participate, benefit from, but we're not um, heaping condemnation upon you as an individual. And I think if white people can can hear that, see that, I, I think that would be helpful in their staying in the moment of of hearing some really hard stuff. Well, and I just think it's hard for white people to recognize that you can have an experience with an institution, say a business or a school or a family, and your your experience is real and authentic, but it doesn't translate to people of color. People of color can encounter that same person, that same school, that same business, and have a totally different experience. And that's just, you know, if, if you are a white person who is consciously, you know, trying to reject and be mm-hmm. anti-racist, like it's just so hard to believe that other, that, that, and a lot of times, and the most damning thing about it is that sometimes the people who are, you know, who, who are perpetrating this, you know, double standard are intentionally operating not out of racism, but out of racial bias. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you can't even, you know, you can't even approach it with them because anyway, it's just because it's hard for that to be transformative because they're so resistant to the fact that I'm not racist. And you can yeah. say like, okay, but your racial bias is yeah. wounding people and yeah. dehumanizing people yeah. and causing real pain and that matters and people are saying, well, well, that's not my intent and how dare you impugn my character. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's really quite difficult. But I mean, I think for white people, just because it is difficult doesn't mean it's not real. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I just think most white people, myself included, just have no idea how constantly disrespected people of color are walking around in mm-hmm. America and it's not that I, I, you know, I think I've said before, I don't want to 
do away with white privilege. I want to extend it mm. to black people mm-hmm. and brown mm-hmm. people. And, people, you know, I want everyone to get the benefit of the doubt. I want mm. everyone to sort of walk around in the world and feel like no one can kill me and not have to answer questions mm. about it later, right? Like, yeah. I want everyone, I want that to be human privilege. Sure. That's what I want. Sure. I want white privilege to become human privilege. Yeah. And um, a lot of times white people believe that that already is mm. how the world works. And it isn't. And that's a hard, hard reality, even when you think you've already encountered it and realize you really probably haven't yet. So that's what I'm thinking about. Wow. Awkward transition. (laughs) What are you preaching about? (laughs) Well, we are preaching the last, (laughs) the last, the last sermon on the book of Philippians for this series. And we're down to the last three verses. Where Paul says, you know, greet the saints in the name of Jesus. And so um, we're going to talk about sainthood, um, what it means to be a saint. And uh, there's three simple verses. And um, when I sent an outline to our um, video person for the sermon last week, she sent me a text or an email saying, wait, you left out three verses. Are you really going to get a sermon out of these last three verses? All oh, Paul yeah, says yeah. is, greet the saints and Jesus. And um, he doesn't say much. But yes, I think there's something really deep and beautiful and profound uh, by Paul addressing not just the Philippians, but whenever he writes you know, correspondence, uh, he greets people in the church as saints. And that is, it's really powerful. He calls them, you know, holy ones. I mean, even the Corinthians, I mean, they were, they were doing all kinds of stuff. They, that was a really messed up church. And yet Paul calls them saints. And so I really am leaning towards, um, expressing, um, my pastoral heart for the folks at Derrida Church um, you know, there's this, uh, I think it's, I think his name was Charles Cooley, sociologist, but he had a, uh, something called the theory of the looking glass self that said, whatever the most important person in your life thinks of you, that will shape how you think about yourself. Yeah. And if the scripture, if the word of Jesus addresses you as saint, yeah. that, that hear that. Um, yeah, I think that's so interesting because, and I think we really struggle with this, with really trusting the Holy Spirit with one another mm-hmm. and recognizing that sainthood is not about behavior, mm-hmm. right? Like we commonly in like the yes. vernacular, we look at someone's behavior and say like, oh, that man's a saint or mm-hmm. that woman's a saint. And certainly like I think the fruit of sainthood yes. is behavior, yes. but not the seed. Yes. And and yes. so I think we have to be, as as the body of Christ, we have to be a people who believe in transformation yeah. Yeah. and who are, you yeah. know, who are able to accept people yeah. on the way mm-hmm. to um, being renewed yeah. in Christ and recognizing that just because you're not there yet doesn't mean you're outside of the body of Christ. Well, in a lot of... Christian culture, there's talk about having Jesus in us, Jesus in our hearts. But Paul speaks more often about us being Being in in Christ, that we're in this holy sphere called being in Christ. And that's what I want to point to. Mm -hmm. You're not a saint because of your behavior. You're a saint because you live, move, and have your being in this realm called being in Jesus. And so, yeah, I want to unpack that for them and um, hopefully it's a blessing. Well, I just want to say for the record, I think that neither of us won or lost that bet. I think that you okay, thought so, we were going to be done no, that's, no, we're not talking about all this. You're super gracious. No, I said it was going to take you to Advent. But I, we were not to Advent yet. And so, I said I was going to be done in I know, September. But I'm just saying, like, if I had not pushed it so hard, my love of exaggeration, then I would have clearly won the bet. But I didn't. I said, you're not going to finish till Advent. And yeah. you, my friend, are still six weeks away from Advent. Well, so check me out. I know. So I, you did not win, but I didn't win either. So I think we have to call it a draw. Very good. I'm, um, I'm, I'm good with that. Um, so this week, I am moving the next step into our series on Amos. Um, I really, uh, I, I really um, was happy with the sermon last week. 
um, which I don't think we got a recording of, but um, just talking about the difference between a central prophet, Amaziah, and the peripheral prophet, Amos, and um, this idea of like, who do we recognize as prophets? And if we take the Bible seriously, then we ought to be aware of the fact that we're more likely to listen to false prophets I mean, mm. than, than real prophets, that we in our cultural moment tend to hear people with power and with institutional authority and with a certain kind of educational or familial pedigree. And those people, it's not that they were disqualified in scripture. I mean, Nathan is, is an example of an institutional prophet who was holy and anointed and really spoke truth to power, as they say. Um, but the, for the majority of um, what we have represented in Scripture, the the prophets were um, were peripheral. I mean, mm. they were people without status, without authority, without power, who were often labeled disturbers of the peace, right? Yeah. And so I think it's really important as we encounter prophets in Scripture to just to have that in mm-hmm. our minds mm-hmm. and not assume that this is somebody that we would recognize as holy if they showed up in our midst today because That's so we good. would not. And yeah. and I just think we go like, oh, Amos, like who couldn't get down with Amos? Let justice roll down like a river. But yeah. I mean, I mean, not nobody. Obviously, people did recognize Amos as a prophet because they preserved his words and we have them in scripture. But mm-hmm. in that moment, it was quite difficult to accept the reality that mm. Amos, who was saying, like, hey, everything's good, was the false prophet. And Amos, who was saying, like, everything has to change or yeah. God is going to change it for us. It was hard to believe that he, because he showed up saying, like, no, folks, things really are this bad. Yeah. Um, and that, anyway, so that is just related. Like, last week, we were just sort of saying, this is who Amos was. And then this week, we get into the first of two sermons on what he said and basically just said, look, if you think that systemic injustice doesn't matter to God, you are delusional mm. and that we were called to be a light to the nations. And I said past week that, you know, Israel wasn't at this point, they were a mirror and we, I mean, the Bible is a terrifying thing to read seriously. Jean's mother is saying, hey, we have a systemic injustice problem and it has to be addressed. And she's Amos, right? And so many times in the body of Christ, we want to say, we want to say either forgiveness or justice, right? So you've got certain activists saying there's no place for Brant Jean, and you've got certain Christians saying there's no place for Allison Jean, and the reality is scripture says, no, no, mm-hmm. both. It's mm-hmm. not forgiveness instead of justice, mm-hmm. and it's not justice instead of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. It is justice and forgiveness, mm-hmm. both, not either. And so this week and next week, we're just looking at Amos has a problem with the culture um and the religion is not undoing the effects of systemic injustice Mm. and brutality and crushing poverty and Mm. this is not god's intention and it's separating people from god and if we don't reform our systems then god will destroy them and i did not write the bible so this is what we're what we're stuck with and that's what we're preaching about well whoever is tasked with um recording your sermon, they need to record this Sunday. Well, I might, I might just record last week's on my phone, and so that we can have a complete series for folks who might want it. Anyway. Excellent. All right, we're done, and we're so so out of time. So you can find our churches. Uh, you can look up to write a church on Google and get to their website. The Grove is at thegrovecharlotte.org. You can find all of Yolando's sermons on Podbean. And you can find most of my sermons on iTunes, the Grove Charlotte uh, website, and your podcast. So thanks for listening, and we will talk next week.